What's up, everybody? We back. R2C2, another week, special week. Fresh off our uh, trip to the MLB All-Star Game, see? Yeah, man, I'm still exhausted from the All-Star Game. I bet you are. I bet you are. You were in a million different places each day. That's a long week, man. And then I I had to duck out on the Hall of Fame. I feel bad for Buck. I mean, because Buck and Big Poppy, but I couldn't get up Sunday morning, man, to drive up there. I couldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> was it that or was it that it was 112 degrees in the sun? Probably both. <laughs> and, then they, and then I probably yeah. would have had to wear a suit. So I was like, nah, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Well, we're pumped today to talk with one of our uh, our favorite writers. Um, you know that this man is great at his job when he's someone who CC even wants to talk to. Because let me tell you, that's not the case <laughs> with every baseball writer. <laughs> so... Uh, just an incredible columnist uh, with the New York Post, now has an awesome podcast called The Show with John Heyman, who's joined him at the New York Post, and now the New York Post sports is just just so dominant. It's incredible. And you also see him on MLB Network, not to mention he has excellent tastes in restaurants. I know this because both of our favorite places in the city is Mark Forgione, and that is Joel Sherman. Joel, thanks for being on R2C2, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You know, I saw CC getting exhausted at the all-star game. He was doing some executive standing at the draft and it was, like, <laughs> it was like, as if the Pope were at the draft, everybody has to pass CC. They have to give their like, hello, <laughs> everything, you know, it, it was like the portal to the draft was stopping in front of CC and paying respects. <laughs> no, the, that the, sounds the draft about was, right. The draft was pretty cool this year though, Joe, did you think or no? Yeah. So I, I think you and I talked about it that day, CC, which is uh, I like everything they've done to try to juice it up. Uh, there's obviously, you know, you and I talked through the years, you know, we're, you're obviously a big sports fan. I love the NBA in particular. We talk NBA, yeah. NFL, like the NBA and the NFL have gigantic advantages. We know all the players because their college games are are on all the time. And we like college football and college basketball. College baseball is getting bigger, but not like that. And of course, those players go right into their main league. There's no riding the buses in small towns all right. over America. So to me, the last way to really juice up the draft is you got to be able to make trades. Uh, like if that night there had been a rumor that, you know, the Mets were willing to trade the 11th and 14th pick plus two prospects for you know, fill in the blank, Luis Castillo, Juan Soto. Like people would have tuned into that draft because I think the only way to get people to tune into the draft is you have to bring them into this pennant race with players they know. And then you trap them and say, let me tell you who Drew Jones is. Mm -hmm. You know, let me tell you who Jackson Holiday is. And now I've got a captive audience and I got a better chance. I don't think, CC, we have any chance at all if we don't trade draft picks there. Man, that, that's a great point. And this year's draft was star-studded, like you said, with Drew Jones and Jackson Holiday and Cam Collier. So many great stories, like legacy stories that we could have told. I mean, they're getting told, but it could have been on a bigger scale for sure if you bring in, you know, today's players and and this this pennant race. Like you said, it's a great, great point. Joel, is there any talk to do something like that? Like, is that something that you know, Major League Baseball has considered or the Players Union is open to? So I, it's the Players Association 100% behind it. Um, it comes up in every CBA negotiation. And essentially, it gets shot down by Major League Baseball because I think they're afraid of themselves. They're afraid of what a powerful agent like Scott Boris could do if you give them more ways to potentially manipulate a draft. I think they're afraid of what the Yankees and Dodgers could do if you give them more ways to potentially manipulate a draft and get players to them. 
But to me, there's smart people all around. I'd be a little more afraid of Tampa Bay and Cleveland than I'd be of yeah. the Yankees or something about how they might figure it out, number one. And again, just, you know, CC knows this is such a aficionado on basketball, right? They made the Ted Stepien, and you, Ryan, you broadcast, made yeah. the Ted Stepien rule in the NBA, right? Where you can't trade number one draft pick two years in a row. So, you know, like right. with the Nets now, like if they wanted uh, the Lakers, I'm sorry, they got to trade 2027 and 2029. You can't trade 2027 right. and 2020. So you could come up with all kinds of rules to prevent teams from manipulating things. The bigger thing to me is let's make the sport as interesting as possible mm -hmm. within reason. And this is, yeah. let me show you how stupid this rule is. The, in the few days before the draft, the Braves and the Royals made a trade, right? And the Royals traded the 35th pick in the draft as part of that trade. And they did it because it was a compensation pick. You're allowed mm. to trade a compensation pick. It's a 35th pick, but you can't trade. The Giants couldn't trade the 30th pick. So think about like, if I went in, yeah. and rule, yeah. if no, if the draft didn't exist and I said, let's start from the beginning. And I came up with a rule where you could trade the 35th pick, but you can't trade the 30th. Once you were done slapping me around and laughing me out of the room, you would bar me forever from talking to you. Like those are the actual <laughs> rules of the draft. And when it's that dumb, just apologize and fix it. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, uh, this is why I love reading you, Joel, because- Because uh, I hold back a, a lot, yeah, is that the- Yeah, exactly. No, because you have such an excellent mind. Like the people who I gravitate to in sports media are people who I read and I'm like, I didn't think of that. Or that's an angle that, you know, I haven't seen anywhere else. And I think it's- it's such a credit to your work because that's exactly how I feel every day. Keep going on, I Ryan. I, I, this yeah, is exactly. <laughs> we're, we're, we're well, it's it's funny. Your columns remind me of how I used to feel listening to Colin Coward when he was on ESPN Radio. Whereas, like Colin would have, he would just sometimes it, it, I didn't agree or whatever, but he would always come up with something that was different than what I was otherwise anticipating being talked about that day, you know, just a different angle and, and, uh, and well-researched and well-supported. So what you're saying, I could tell you've given a lot of thought to already, and it makes a lot of sense. And it sort of reminds me a little bit, Joel. And so I want to ask you about this, something Cece and I have talked about a lot, just in the idea of, you know, the number one priority being the interest in the sport and kind of building out from there has been the way that free agency is handled. Because one of my, and CC's like big issues is that the way free agency is now it's random trickles dripped over the period of multiple months. And so it's hard to stay engaged. And I liken it to, um, if you, if you know, Netflix was releasing a show and they're like, okay, here's the next season of Ozark. When's it going to be released? Well, episode one's going to be March 10th. And then episode two is going to be sometime three and a half week, weeks later. And then episode three, you know, and the, you get, you get the point. Is there any, is there any way that you could think of or have thought about in which MLB has a more concentrated free agency period so that that too becomes a, a more sort of interesting period for the sport? It's interesting you went right to a meth show, Ryan. I think, you know, you're not a nice guy, but I think you just said something about yourself. Uh, That's uh, right. I could have gone Breaking Bad and it would have been the same problem. So Ryan, I'm a, and, and I would wonder CeCe's thoughts on it. I'm sure you've shared it on, on this before. Is I'm afraid of deadlines because for a free agent like, C, like how CeCe was after 2008, I don't think it matters. You know, he was such a good player. You know, you're talking about the Hall of Fame before. I think you're going to have to wear a suit one day, CC. But uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I, I, I think for a, a free agent like him, 
it's or Aaron Judge this offseason. A deadline's not going to matter. Everyone's going to put out their best offer to beat the deadline. I'm concerned for the next level of players where a team can say, well, if we sign you, fine. If we don't, who cares? We'll do this or that. And the deadline will force lower salaries for the players. And I'm a little mm. concerned about that. I think the more pertinent thing to do is maybe to make a trade deadline in the off season so that there's no other way to improve except for free agency. Like tell team you've got till November 15th to execute a trade and you can't execute another trade until February 1st, like almost to the dawn of spring training or even February Mm -hmm. 15th. And now the only way to improve your team, to show your ticket buyers, your fan base, your radio and TV partners, you're getting better is you've got to go into free agency. I think that would start up. Would it make it like NBA and NFL where it feels like we wake up that morning and then like five minutes later, it's like free agency is over? Uh, no, but I think if it's the only way to improve, people will do that, right? Because we got a little glimpse of it at the end of the lockout this year where there was, hey, there's only this little time to improve. There's not that many avenues to do this. Go. And so I, I would love a free agent deadline because I think it would create what would be great for the sport and great for people like me who cover it. I just don't think it would be fair to the non-superstar player like CC was. Yeah, and, and I mean, I guess think in, in thinking about that, I mean, the NFL and the NBA, they have the, the minimum cap and they have the cap, so they have to spend that money. You know what I mean? Like, they have to sign those players yes. in Good that point. time frame. In baseball, yeah. those teams, you know, the A's have a fucking $15 million payroll. You know what I'm saying? Like, they don't... If they don't want to sign anybody, they don't have to. You know what I'm saying? So I guess that does make a little more sense where, you know, we don't have that that floor where the teams have to spend, you know, a, a certain amount on on free agency. So I guess that's why we get, you know, the the concentrated where we get so many guys signing and the mid-level, mid-level guys in the NBA. You see, like, you know, some guy you never heard of getting a four-year, $80 million deal. You know what I'm saying? Like, but the yeah. teams have to spend they that have money. To a, they, have, they have to hit a floor. Well, they have to hit a floor. You did the most important thing here. You threw out the first fucking, so I could feel comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was, the it was coming. The women and me suddenly got liberated. And, uh, <laughs> I, I do think one of the missed opportunities in this recent CBA negotiation was to create a floor. Uh, and force, especially the revenue share, the teams that get revenue sharing, to say, Here's a minimum you must get to. And there's gigantic, you go, and I would put gigantic penalties. You lose your first round draft choice. And then if you really want to stimulate it, again, in a smaller period, say you have to get to a floor by February 1st before spring training mm-hmm. begins. Mm-hmm. And this way, you have to do it in the offseason because so, so much that's happened in baseball in let's call the money ball era is we've gotten smarter and the game has gotten worse. Like, there's no doubt we have more information, and but it has slowed the game down off the field. It has slowed the game down on the field as everyone is treating every pitch and every move like a war. And, you know, like if I go about a mile north of me to Washington Square Park, I would rather watch speed chess than slow chess, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, and we've and and I'm in my late fifties, right? My children certainly don't want to watch slow chess or slow baseball. They want to watch a quicker version of it. They want to be entertained in the off season by boom, boom. Let's go. What are you doing to improve your team? And so 
at some point, and this is why the union and central baseball have to be the, the, the champions of this, and they hate each other so much that it's hard for them to be the champions. The teams aren't going to do it, right? Like the teams are selfish. What do I have to do to win? If every game had to last seven hours, but I won 114 games, I wouldn't give a shit, right? Yeah, like that's right. my job. Like until you change it and force me to play speed chess, I can't win the chess game unless I'm making a move every 30 seconds. Then I'm going to go slow if that's what's best for my team. I'm going to go slow in the offseason and really think out these moves of every, how I use every 40-man roster spot. I just don't think anybody enjoys, nobody really wants to watch a front office work or dead time. They want to watch great athletes be great athletes. And, you know, I think we have the best group of athletes we've ever had playing Major League Baseball. And it's like having great actors in a movie and giving them no scenes. Like we do not give them enough scenes to be Mm. great athletes. Wow. That's a wonderful analogy. I love that. The, you know, I mean, it's funny because talking to you about this stuff, Joel, reminds me a little bit and see, I don't know if you feel the same way of what it was like talking with Theo. I was about to say that. Yeah. Theo for sure. Same thing. Yeah. Like one, one of our favorite pods I think we've done is last year we did an in-depth dive with Theo over basically everything that was being implemented at the minor league level, kind of like point by point, you know, for the perspective rule changes. Um, and we still have to do our, our review of how it went. We kind of uh, weren't able to, thanks to what was going on with the CBA at the end of uh, the season. But um, I guess, Joel, along those lines, because we're sort of talking about big picture, because I agree with you, <laughs> clearly the sport needs to change, right? Just from an interest level entertainment standpoint, because you have these incredible athletes. Also, I was talking with someone from baseball yesterday. Participation is in a great place around the country right now. It really now. is. So, yeah, see, you know it firsthand. Yeah. So it's not a matter of getting people to play, right? It's a matter of getting people to watch afterwards and, and you know, in the midst of. Um, how much do you think the pitch clock next year, assuming it happens, uh, plays a role into what you're talking about? So I could only know this anecdotally. Uh, and and emotionally from seeing the game, there's nothing, you know, like God bless Araldus Chapman. He's been great at his job, but when he comes in the game, I die a little bit, uh, you know, like <laughs> but it's going to take a long time for him to deliver yeah. a pitch. Like if you're watching the match, Chris Bassett, it's like, there's been land wars, thro- you know, fought quicker than <laughs> throwing a baseball. And, and I appreciate that. That's how those go. Those are very successful major league pitchers. And I appreciate how they get there. But when people say baseball doesn't have a clock and that's what's beautiful about it, fuck that, right? Like, yeah. like, like, first of all, there is a rule about when you need to deliver a ball, right? Yeah. And yeah. we could honor that. We haven't. We've let this creeping occur of the hitter stepping out, the pitcher taking too much time. We have a unique sport. Again, our appreciation of other sports because of fandom, in your case, Ryan, you work these games. The best players have the ball in the other sport. Like if I want mm-hmm. LeBron James or Stephen Curry to have the ball on every possession, I could do that. Pat Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers touch the ball on every offensive play. You know, baseball's democratic. Mike Trout and Mookie Betts might bat once every three innings. I could decide to work around them. The pitcher, the defense has the ball to initiate action in our game. So since it's so different, if we do not stir the pitcher to initiate action quicker, we are going to stand around too long. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the things we get, if we got them to throw quicker, 
One of the unintended consequences is, I think physiologically, they have shown if you do not take a lot of time between pitches, you can't throw max velocity over. Exactly. There you go. Right? So to me, oh, if I don't go the every 15 to 18 seconds, you better learn some craft. You better learn how to control the ball. You better be back to movement because we could talk about what happened to batting average with launch angle and everything. Go, you could go on baseball survive. Here's the batting average at 93 miles an hour. Here's it at 94. Here's it at 95. Here's it. It goes down. It's hard to hit a baseball that's coming fast. And of course, it sets up your other pitches. And so if we don't find a way to move faster and make the pitches come in slower, we're screwed. Yeah, that's 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 my I mean, the, the pitch clock is is it's going to bring the art of pitching back. Like guys going to have to figure out how to how to throw the ball inside, how to move it around. You can't stand around, throw the ball, max effort, walk around the mound, grab the rosin bag, gather yourself, throw the ball, max effort. It's not it's going to it's going to be you're going to have to figure out how to pitch. And and I think, you know, for me, I, I keep telling guys, I don't want to speed up your decision making. I want to speed up all the bullshit in between your decision making. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And, and, and for me, I don't think it's – and I've, I've watched a couple of games with the with the pitch clock. I don't think it's going to be a pitcher's problem. I think pitchers want to get into a rhythm and want to move fast. It's going to be the hitters. It's going to be – you're going to tell Juan Soto he can't step out of the box and do whatever he wants to do when it's – I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's going to be – I think it's going to be the, the it's established hitters in the big leagues that are going to have a problem with the 14 seconds more than it's going to be – the pitchers figuring it out. So, so, so I, I just throw in this is we're all watching Nestor Cortez pitch this year. I think one of his successes is he works. The hitters yeah. almost aren't ready for, he's throwing a pitch like every eight to 10 seconds. The hitters are like, what the fuck is going on here? Right. Yeah. Like, like he is working at the pace he wants, which allows him when he slows down, he's using it to his advantage. He's doing dance steps, changing his arm angle, changing his body, changing his timing. But mainly he's able to do that because he works quickly. So anything else looks different. Number two, I'm, a, I'm assuming I'm a little older than you guys. Again, because the defense starts with the ball, the only thing we can truly preview in a baseball game is Tom Seaver versus Steve Carlton, right? Bob Gibson versus Fergie Jenkins, right? Like, like that's the only thing we know. I don't know, like most days Aaron Judge is going to play, but like we've got load management. Yeah. Maybe he's not going to play. Now, with the way it's set up, I look into the pitching schedule. Half of it is TBD. Certainly tomorrow is TBD. How can I sell the freaking game if I can't yeah. tell them who's pitching? In part because we're not letting pitchers become artists who could control the game. I want that to come back. There's going to be such a great advantage. Now, I'm wondering, again, as I'm watching the Yankees wobble a little here in July, I'm wondering if, this, if maybe these guys aren't trained in a certain way. But I thought one of the big success stories of the first three months was their starters were healthy. They only used five of them, and they essentially went six, seven, or eight innings. Like, you were able yeah. to say, hey, we're going to go see Luis Severino today. We're going to see Jordan Montgomery or Garrett Cole. Like, we knew who the Yankees' starting pitching was. For most teams, that's not what they are because guys aren't trained to do it, and we don't honor doing it at a high level. And I think the pitch clock will bring back, if you're going to go to craft where you're not throwing full force on every pitch, Maybe you can give me that seventh inning. Maybe you can give me that eighth inning. Maybe you can go around the lineup for the third time. Maybe you can go around the lineup for the fourth time. Maybe I don't have to burn out relievers and see the sad cases of guys like Chad 
you know, uh, Green and Michael King, who yeah. are, you know, just have a brick on a gas pedal all the time and are up and in all the time because my starting pitching isn't giving me what I need. So I want to go back to a time where who's who's doing CC's career long job, which obviously he did so spectacularly. It matters. And I know who it is before I get to the freaking ballpark. Yeah, I, I could not agree more with that, Joel. And and it's interesting because doing games this year, baseball games during this season, I think maybe because I had a, a nice concentrated stretch of games, it it gave me more of an appreciation than ever before for the way the game just goes to a screeching halt when you get into the pen. This is not a novel thought. We all know this. But for some reason, this year... Uh, it has really like hit me of how much more I enjoy the product when I'm seeing the rhythm of two starters throwing strikes working quickly versus when we get into the pen, regardless of who's coming out of the pen. Yeah, it does not you, matter how effective or ineffective they are. And, and now you're getting into the pen in the third inning, Kaz. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like exactly. And, and, and now you got, I mean, you got openers. and So now you got like the eighth inning guys starting the game. So the first yeah. inning's taking forty-five minutes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because it, because yes. he's pitching it like it's the eighth, like it's the end of the game. Like it's it 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 just makes it. I mean, it just makes it so hard to watch, well, man. Well, uh, I'll you know, you know, this falls into my category, guys, of smarter and worse. The opener yeah. is smart. It's smart, like the numbers show. Like if I if I force you to see four different pitchers you're going to have a tougher time as a hitter, especially if I get tell each of those guys, go out there like grunting animals and throw as hard as you can for as long as you can. And then I'll bring in the next grunter to do the same thing. But I'll say this is we're talking the day after the first Subway Series game. There's a lot of reasons the Mets won and the Yankees lost. One of Taiwan Walker figured it out on the mound yep. and got deep into yes. the game after a brutal first inning. Jordan Montgomery yes. had a brutal first inning and didn't figure it out. Like the starting pitcher in the game was a big factor for both teams yesterday. One figured it out. One didn't because we know the longer you make the Met bullpen pitch, the better your chances to win Walker's ability to essentially hand to Ottavino and Diaz and remove everybody else was a big deal in that game because it kept you know, every team, as good as you are, has defects. The Mets' defect that they're going to have to fix in the next week, one of them, is they got to get an arm or probably two in the bullpen. Two? Yeah, maybe two. Yep. Taiwan Walker limited them to literally their best two relief pitchers. If they have to go to, like, another guy, I'm not sure the Yankees don't win the game. Yeah, that's, that is 100% yeah, and true. To, and to your point about Edwin Diaz, like him, that, that Joey Gallo at bat, he sped him up with the fastball, but then – he sped him up on the mound. Like, Gallo was was just li lifting his bat up, and Diaz was lifting his leg up to pitch. But then he was throwing them sliders. Like, it, you know, so, like, pitchers to figure out a way to use the rhythm of the game, the crowd, that, that was a big moment, to kind of speed you up and, and back you off at different times. So I think the clock, like, uh, back to our point about the clock, I think the clock will be good for pitchers. I think hitters are going to have a little tough time figuring that out. CC, I'm, there's a few things that worry me more about this, all of the sports industry than how gambling has come into it. But I'll say this, if I were allowed to gamble on baseball, which I am not, never have, never will, 
I would have bet Joey Gallo was going to strike out against Ed. <laughs> that was the that was the shortest strikeout in the history of our sport. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I it, that was uh, I think that was one of those moves where everyone just kind of went, huh? Really? We're right? Like it, I mean, I, he's trying to tie the game up, man. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? If he bumps into one, you know. I think I'll if he had a thousand why. years worth of it, that's what it tied the game, but not the one yeah. last night. No, oh, no. Exactly. I think, I think My- at that moment of the event, Diaz was striking 51% of the guys he's faced this year out, and uh, Joey Gallo had struck out in 38% of his at-bats. Oh. And that's like, hello, two sides meeting, and that, that, was, <laughs> yeah. that felt too obvious. <laughs> Uh, so to, I have some more big picture questions, but since we're here, Joel, and the trade deadline is is coming up on uh, on Tuesday. The trade um, deadline is coming up. Is... No, no, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> so I better get to work. What it, you better. Yeah. Is, is Joe, well, you've already been working quite a bit, and we'll get to Soto in a second. Will Joey Gallo be a Yankee post-August 2nd, do you believe? You know, I, I one of the things I've learned – about this, I understand how the media world works now, which is hot takes are best to be definitive about things. And I try to avoid being definitive because who knows, right? Like stuff happens every day in every game, which is completely unpredictable. But I'll say that I would be pretty surprised if Joey Gallo is a Yankee on August 3rd. I think they understand now that they, this was a mistake, bad fit, uh, and that, they have to lengthen the bottom of the lineup with guys they can imagine can handle like the Astro pitching. You know, the Yankees, yeah. Yank, like I know the Yankees want to act like, well, it's seven games and anything can happen in the postseason. And, and again, I did a podcast, me, me and John Heyman did our podcast from the Paley Center a couple of nights ago. And we had David Cohn and Ron Darling, who were members of the 1988 Mets. During the regular season, the 1988 Mets went 10 and one against the Dodgers and outscored them by 40 runs. And then they lost the seven-game series to the Dodgers in the NLCS. So, you know, shit happens, and the Yankees could beat the Astros in the playoffs. By the way, both of them might lose a division series and never see each other. Shit happens. But within the context of shit happening, I would be shocked if the Yankees don't understand that the, the length of the lineup has to be better, and Joey Gallo is basically defenseless as a New York Yankee and against the top pitching in the sport. Yeah, that's how it almost at times like it, it start, like started to feel cruel putting him in the lineup, watching how incompetent his at bats have been. And that's how I look at it, too, Joel. I'm like, OK, you watch those match up with the Astros. And yes, of course, there's always like a certain level of randomness to the playoffs. But also those matchups can inform you. And I know you had the column about those two games probably being the most meaningful regular season games that the Yankees would play the rest of the year twofold, what it did to home field, which I think was very significant. And then also what it informed them about how they match up about the, against the Astros, which is also significant. And I would think that they have got to get somebody who is a contact oriented, trusted hitter uh, that they can put it in the outfield at one of those corner spots. Um, Obviously the dream who does fit that bill. And then a whole lot more is Soto. Uh, You and John had a column a couple days ago about, they're being, and I'm paraphrasing, you correct me if I'm, if I'm not, uh, you know, characterizing it properly, but there being some sort of like inkling whispers that the Cardinals were one of one or two teams that were really being focused on by the Nationals. As we sit here Wednesday, uh, late morning, um, is that still the feeling? Is there any new, you know, word or how, do we think the Yankees have a real shot in this? Uh, I think they're down ballot. 
Uh, I think that they, A, don't want to give up the collateral necessary to do this, and B, recognize that they probably need the high-end starting pitcher and probably a reliever more, and that just a good bat, if they could get someone like Andrew Benatendi, who they then hope they could compel with their clubhouse to go get vaccinated so he could play the series in Toronto in September, and if they play Toronto in October, he doesn't, you know, have to miss games uh, against them. So uh, I, I think... You know, he's a 300 hitter. He's a good eye. He's a good corner outfielder. Uh, he's proven in with the Red Sox, I believe it was 2018, that he can handle big games. So, like, like I think they think, hey, where do we sign up for, like, Luis Castillo, Andrew Benintendi, and David Robertson? Kind of trio, you know, like, and fit and yeah. improve all three buckets, uh, you know, and, you know, or – Three people like that, you know, Pablo Lopez, Ian Happ, and Michael Fulmer. You know, you know, you pick your your your, your trio. I think they want to try to improve all of them. Just to go to Soto, I, I've made this point several times in print on the air. I'll make it for you. Mike Rizzo is a it's funny because this ties into what we were talking about at first, who runs front offices. Mike Rizzo is a not an anomaly now when it comes to front offices. He's a scout. He's a scout at heart. He's the general manager of the nationals. And this is going to be about what he believes from his scouting core about the players. Last year, as we got to the close, close to the deadline, we were all sure San Diego was getting Scherzer and maybe Trey Turner also. I mean, there were people reporting it, but I think the Dodgers knew if they put the catcher Cambridge Ruiz in the trade, the scout in Mike Rizzo, that's the player he wanted the most. So when John and I are reporting this, we're talking to people who are like, these are the players Rizzo valued in the draft. These are the players that Rizzo has liked historically, types like this. Mm. Which teams have this? The ones that have it the most are the Cardinals. The Padres have players like this. The Mariners have players like this. And by the way, all of them should feel a level of desperation greater than the Yankee desperation, right? The yeah, Padres have absolutely. never won a World Series. Seattle hasn't never won a World Series, hasn't been in the playoffs in two decades. The Cardinals are barely holding on to a wild card spot. And they have three of the best position players in the sport playing every day. And so, like, I know we get myopic. We're in New York. The Yankees are wobbling. The Yankees are wobbling. Yankees, as we sit here, have the best record in the major leagues. Like, like, because again, shit happens. Like, they should they have the best record in the major leagues? Well, the Dodgers just lost two straight to the worst team in the sport. If they didn't, that's Washington. They'd have it. The Astros just lost two in a row to the second to the team with the second worst record in the sport, Oakland. If they had won those games, they'd have the best record. You know, like I know Yankee fans want to start running around in the street and hitting themselves with razor blades. But the reality <laughs> is, the Yankees, like if I said to you on April 7th, the Yankees will have an 11 and a half game lead a week before the trade deadline and be arcing towards about 105 wins. Everyone goes, just give me the contract. Let me sign up for that. Sign me up for that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where they are. Having said that, I think they've showed enough wobble. And we all know, because we live here, Yankee years are marked differently. CC was part of the last champion in 2009. That feels like it happened in the 1800s in New York, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so they have some pressure to go out and I think expend a lot of prospect collateral and get big stuff done that impacts their team. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, 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 I think it's, I think the one thing that this current stumble has helped with to Joel is clearly identify what they need. You know, if they had been pitching the way they were in, you know, May and, and June, 
maybe you don't feel like you need a starter so desperately, right? Whereas, like, at this moment in time, I think it's very clear they don't just need a starter. They need someone they could put in game two after Cole. So, can, can, like, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, can I do this? It's your podcast. I, I would ask yeah. CC because he was yeah, around, and, and CC certainly punted if you feel put on the spot. But right. you were there when David Robertson left last time, and he did not leave under great circumstances. You know, there was questions about shares for the playoffs and stuff. Do you oh, think yeah. He, do you th- like now look, I assume if Garrett Cole and Josh Donaldson could fake Kumbaya, we'll all fake Kumbaya for the good <laughs> of the team, right? Uh, do you think he could come back into the clubhouse and everything will be fine? Like the leadership fabric of God, you know, Judge, et cetera, DJ LeMayu, that it will be an easy path? Or was it a tough enough exit that an re-entry would be a problem? No, I think it was fine. I I, I completely forgot about that, to be honest, until you just said that. Um and and I think most of the, the team may not even be there. I mean, you know, the core, maybe Judge and a couple of guys. But, no, I mean, and, and for me, it's it's weird. It's not, you know, once you're a Yankee, you're always a Yankee. No matter how you exit it or whatever, it's always easier to come back. So I don't think – I think it I think it would be a perfect fit, to be honest. I didn't even – I had been so focused on Michael Fulmer, I didn't even think about D-Rob, but, I mean – Always getting a guy back that's done it in in the Bronx is uh it's it's just it makes you feel better when that guy comes back because you know he can handle the pressure of pitching in New York. Do you when you say you're concentrating on Michael Fulmer? See, sorry, I've become a reporter so quick. No, 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 this is no, great. Yeah. I, I, love I, it. I just only yeah. I had, he was the only reliever I had just thought about. Like I was just been thinking about we we you know we need to get Michael Fulmer. So I'll. I'll let you in on something. Like, there's a lot of times where people think that I get told things by the front office, and people be shocked how little this Yankee front office actually helps reporters. <laughs> and, and I end up like figuring things out because, like, you know, Brian Cashman's been the general manager for over two decades. He drops breadcrumbs of the kind, like I was talking about Mike Rizzo. Well, there's kinds of players that this organization likes. And it's clear that in the bullpen, what they favor is a guy with a elite dominant pitch, right? Clay home sinker, you know, the breaking ball of Kane, you know, the, 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 that kind of stuff. Uh, change up of Wandy Peralta. Fulmer's slider is a dominant pitch. And it's one of the reasons. David Robinson's curveball is a dominant pitch. And so, like, when I think about who might the Yankees get? When I hear somebody say, oh, this reliever with a 175 ERA, I'm like, no, he doesn't have a dominant pitch. They're not going to. I remember a couple of years ago, people were talking about like uh, Matt Boyd from Detroit. And I was like, okay, good luck with that. Matt, Ball's a, Matt yeah. Boyd's a left-hand fly ball pitcher who doesn't strike out enough guys. Give me the guy in Yankees last 20 years that Brian Cashman acquired that fits that profile. Doesn't mean he won't, won't be the first. But they are dropping breadcrumbs, what they like all the time. And it's important if you're a reporter to be paying attention about those breadcrumbs. And I just remember like a couple of years ago, it, we, like I remember like Fulmer had the elbow problems, but I remember like him, his name being around a couple of trades when I was still playing. So I had just always kept my eye on him and I know he was available this year. So I knew, like you said, that that was a guy that they had been eyeing. Yeah, and, you know, it's just a great full-circle story because Fulmer and Luis Sessa were the trade that brought Joanna Cespedes to the Mets and helped the Mets get to the World Series in 2015. Yeah, good point. You know, it's interesting you just brought up Pablo Lopez, Joel, because we've heard Castillo and his name a lot. And, and you know, obviously, from a Yankee perspective, after seeing what he did against the Yankees, it's like, go get that dude. He has dominant stuff. Um, 
I haven't seen Pablo Lopez a lot. I know his numbers are excellent. He's had now, I think this is his third really strong season in a row, starting with Miami. How likely do you think it is the Marlins move him, and, and what might the market be like for him as a starter? It would be dramatic. He might not have the high-end stuff of Castillo, but he has more control, so you get him for a lot more. I believe he has three years of control as opposed to Castillo, who's a free agent after next season. And I do see Pablo Lopez at City Field all the time, and I never like to – I certainly don't want to do it uh, in a podcast with CC Sabathia, who probably forgot <laughs> – more about pitching, eating breakfast this morning than me, than I've known in my whole life. But when you watch Pablo Lopez, what comes off and resonates when I'm watching him is he knows what he's doing. He has a feel for the game. He has a feel for the bat. He's remembering it back to a bat, what happened. He's making adjustments. It's not just stuff. And by the way, the stuff is very good. It's not Luis Castillo, but Luis Castillo's in the top one or 2% of stuff in the whole sport. Pablo Lopez is probably one grade below that, but Pablo Lopez knows how to sequence, knows how to change speeds. It feels like the stuff we were talking about earlier in the show. It's, I like, I love to watch Cortez. I love to watch guys yeah, turn it into ballet, who turn it into art, who aren't just out there grunting and turning around and seeing what if they hit 100 miles per hour or not on the gun. <laughs> and Pablo Lo Lopez feels like the kind of guy who could go out and be like, you know, like, say, like Mike Mussina was, oh, I don't have this pitch today, but I still have these two, and I could win with these two, but I'm smart enough to recognize, I still have, to, I don't have my best fastball, I still got to throw it, here's the batters to throw it to, here's the zones to throw it to, and they're just smart. Pablo Lopez, really smart starting pitcher. Did you guys see Bautista, I mean, or have you seen Bautista yet for the Orioles pen? Oh, geez. If, if the, Oh Disgust. my god, bro! And that's what I'm saying. Like everybody's like, what? <laughs> like, come on, man. Well, like, it's funny. I but if you go look, the Orioles have arguably the best bullpen in the sport this year. It's one that's of what I'm saying. Like it's like in Baltimore. That's what I'm saying. Like they're like everybody's bullpen is a super bullpen. You know what I'm saying? Like you go to Baltimore, you face that guy. Like it's crazy, man. And but but if you go look, CC at their bullpen. It's good because in a lot of ways, they're doing what the Yankees do. Every one of those guys, you know, Dylan Tate sinker, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, uh, Batista's four-seam fastball, Keegan Aiken's uh, slider. Like, they all have a dominant pitch and secondary stuff. And we've just learned with the analytic stuff. CeCe, I'm sure you, when you came up, it's like you got to throw these pitches to set up your slider. Nobody sets anything up anymore. That guy can't hit a slider. Throw him three fucking sliders. Just, you know, just like, throw him over and over and over. Yeah. And, like the guy comes in. But look, I mean, Clay Holmes is a, I, I hate to put him in the same sentence as Rivera, but everybody knows what pitch is coming. It's right, a dominant fuck, pitch. Yeah. And nobody could really hit it. And I think when you see, if you have a dominant pitch, I would, you know, it's, it's like anything else. It's like if Tom Brady figures out you can't cover somebody on, you know, one of his wide receivers, he's not playing democracy. Well, I got to throw to these two guys. He's going to humiliate you until you double cover or triple cover him. Then he'll do something else. And I think pitching has become like that, which is you can't, especially out of the bullpen where you're getting one look at that dominant pitch, you can't hit this pitch. We're going after you. And I think that's why the kind of really smart teams in the trade market, free agent market are, Let's get a pitcher. I don't want relief pitchers with portfolios. I want a relief pitcher with a dominant pitch. 
And you you know what's crazy about Baltimore too is that they they're getting all these they're drafting and getting all these young guys that have that have dominant stuff that are failed starters. You know, so they're not they're not drafting relievers or they're not looking for relievers. They're getting guys that are starters and then turn them into relievers. So they all have secondary pitches along with the good fastball. You know what I mean? So it's it's easier to go from a failed like like Mo. You can go from a failed starter, go to the bullpen, and go out there and and throw you know two pitches as hard as you can for one inning. Like that's that's a much easier thing to do than to try to go out and just look for re, look for relievers. You know what I mean? Like it's. I'm sure he tried to burn every one of these films, but I actually have seen Zach Britton start baseball games. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was not good. No, it was not. <laughs> Joel, could the Red Sox be sellers? So the question is, the answer is yes. I would assume in a very, very strong way, the general manager, Heim Bloom, wants to sell. Absolutely. And the question then becomes, does ownership with a fan base that's upset already? You know, the Red Sox have the most fascinating last 20 years. They're the, the, the greatest roller coaster oh. in the world. Like, yeah. like, I would rather have their last 20 years than the Yankees because championships are forever and they have four of them. And I yeah. would do four championships in 16 last place seasons because just championships are everything to me. Uh, and they've got them. But, you know, the Yankees have had brilliant consistency. The Yankees don't ever yeah. play a meaningless game. They almost always play in the postseason. You know, the Red Sox, they might finish last again. That would be like the fifth or sixth time in this century. They finish last with all yeah. their resources. And I think that Heim Bloom has been dedicated, starting with the Mookie Betts trade, uh, uh, to think big picture. How do we avoid the roller coaster? What can we do here? to build the depth of a system, have financial flexibility, that once we start winning in a serious way again, we don't fall to fifth ever again. We're always a 90-plus win team. You know, right now we have two and probably three teams that you could pretty consistently bank, they're going to win 90 games. Yankees, Dodgers, Astros. They've now proven over time, especially the Yankees and Dodgers and now the Astros over the last seven or eight years, that when the season starts, you know, whatever they're thrown, they'll figure it out. They're smart organizations. They have real resources. They know how they have front offices that know how to fix as the season progresses. So there's that. There's almost no reason why the Red Sox should be in it. By the way, this is the model that Steve Cohn's trying to create with the Mets. Like yeah. we have all these resources. Let's be have the best of everything. You know, the Mets are an amazing team. They've been around since 1962. They've never made the playoffs three straight years. You know, they've never finished first place back-to-back -back years. And again, New York, the size of their fan, whatever you think of the Yankee fan base, it's bigger, but like the Mets fan base, bigger than pretty much everybody but two other teams. This should be a juggernaut. I think Steve Cohn knows that and wants to create it, but I'm kind of jumping away. And I think the Red Sox, the question is, within the context of the rebuild, does somebody in ownership have to say, Xander Bogarts is our guy. Raphael Devers is our guy. Whatever else we're doing, let's sign these guys long term. You know, we want people to watch the game on Nesson. We don't want our fans to hate our guts. Or do they make the very tough decision? The way to quicken this up is let's go get eight prospects for those guys plus something else. I don't think Devers will go in this marketplace, but Bogarts could opt out afterwards. Plus, get whatever we can for JD Martinez, Nathan Avaldi, Enrico, uh, Enrique Hernandez. And we'll just have more. It's not a rebuild, 
We'll just have more options at the end of the off when this season ends to go out and spend money. Or now we have better prospects. Let's go trade. When Juan Soto comes up, right. we're totally in play for it. I think it's a hard decision for them and made harder by a fan base, even without with those four championships. It's that feels like yesterday up there, right? We've all traveled up there. They don't yeah, give a yeah. shit about those championships. Right. I, right. I, I, if I'm them, I'm trading everybody except uh Devers. I mean, I and 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 you know, I would, I would, I love Xander, and you know, he's a huge part of, of what they got going on. And I would try to do something like what we did with Chappie, try to trade him for some prospects, and then maybe sign him back next year. You know what I mean? But, but I would, you know, for me, I would trade, I would try to get, you know, something for Evo, uh, Kike, all those guys, you know, right now, and, and just try to rebuild it, because you know that's what they do. Like you said, they'll come in fifth, and then next year they'll be in the in the World Series. So. I mean, you you got to have the prospects and you got to rebuild from within, though. So I, I would I would I would sell right now. Here's here's one. I, I wrote it the other day and I'm thinking about it a lot. It can never happen. It can never. I want to say this can never happen before it gets <laughs> aggregated and whatever. Yeah. Is. Yeah. If Xander Bogarts gets traded and you were the Yankees, would you rather have Xander Bogarts or for what it would cost or Juan Soto? Who helps you more? But I, I like Isaiah kind of left, but to me, he's a backup play. And yeah. he's yeah, Bogart's proven champion, gonna hit in big spots. I I just I'm such a big guy for who's gonna hit the biggest pitching at the biggest times. And I'm yeah. positive about by the way, I'm positive about Soto also. But if you were yeah. trying to just lower the cost a little and impact the length of your lineup and impact the position. I know people think Bogarts isn't a star shortstop. I'd rather have the ball hit to Xander Bogarts in a 3-2 game in the bottom of the ninth inning at Yankee Stadium or Fenway Park than to Isaiah kind of left. Yeah. I I mean, I would love Bogarts. And and cuz Joel, I look at it the same way offensively. When I'm when you're watching a lineup and because of what you described before about the way this Yankee team is with its consistency and you know they're going to be in contention, I am not thinking about just like constructing to get through the regular season. You're thinking about constructing to give yourself the best shot in October. And you need certain kinds of hitters to do that, right? Like you need, you, you need certain kind of guys. And I, that he's the kind of guy who I'm going to feel good about coming up with two men on and two out facing, you know, a nasty Astros arm, you know, in a game, in a game situation, I think Aaron Judge is having his best season. Doesn't take a lot to say that. He's the American League MVP. In a big situation, I'm the other team, and their winning run is on base. I, I'm hoping DJ LeMay wasn't bad. You know, there's a certain type of hitter that I don't yep. want up there because I know he's going to – like with Judge, I could still make my pitch and get out of it. With DJ LeMay, I can make my pitch and be, yeah, crying, and be crying in the clubhouse in two minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was, I always thought that was one of the key things for Jeter too. Yep. Right. When you looked at like his October numbers unaffected by great pitching, maybe and, he's and not going to think of Bogarts like that. Like, you know, like, yeah. how many, you know, we see the Yankees and Red Sox play 19 times a year. We see about 80 plate appearances from Xander Bogarts a year. It just feels like one of those guys where you're like, well, whatever the outcome is, it's going to be a good at bat. Like, yeah. He's not going to have a bad at bat. He just has. Good right. at bats. I think he's the most underrated player in the sport. Actually, he, he's just a great at bat. I'd love to see it, Joel. It would get headlines. It'd yeah. be interesting. I probably have to write about it, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> 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 
Joel, this was uh, this was so wonderful. It's just it's just fantastic hearing your perspective. I love your view of everything involving the game. Obviously, your intel is incredible as well. Um, and uh, good luck sleeping over the next week. I'm sure it's right. going to be super intense. Yeah. But we appreciate you carving out time for us, man. All right. It was great being with you, CC and Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate you. All right. Joel Sherman, you know him from the New York Post. Read him all the time. He has the show with Joel and John Heyman. You can download wherever you get your podcasts. Also can watch Joel on MLB Network. You guys know the deal. New episodes of R2C2 every Thursday. Bonus episodes as well. Uh, Make sure you're subscribed to our YouTube page and uh, subscribe to our podcast or download wherever you get your pods. We'll see you next week. Peace, everybody. Peace. Peace.